0: All right, so welcome for those of you who just joined us. Um, Maybe what we'll do is just a bit of uh, just settling practice, uh, a little bit, maybe five, ten minutes of meditation just to come into the room together, come into our bodies, just preparing the mind and body for Dharma. (laughs) So feel free to find an alert yet relaxed posture. Feel free to close your eyes Just gently coming into the body, letting our attention and awareness, just feel the presence of our feet, legs, our sit bones in the chair or cushion, to see if you can bring your awareness to bearing witness to the body. Here I like to place my awareness either on my feet touching the ground or just on the sensation in my abdomen around my navel area. And here we're just going to come into an acknowledgement of whatever is up for us right now, see if we can just become aware of that without judgment. And just let our experience be, sort of like when we come home from a long day, we put our jacket, shoes, bags down. Here metaphorically, we're just putting all of our bags down. There's no Meditation goal here, or specific practice we're working with, we're just resting in the body, giving a moment to be. So here there's maybe some emotional content or energetic content, content that might need to be touched or met with kindness. Maybe some physical discomfort that needs to be met with kindness and compassion. And here the kindness and compassion we're offering is in the form of non-judgment, just awareness. So there's no doing here, there's no meditating, there's nothing to achieve, there's no goal, just being for a moment. Thank you. So, um, we'll recite refuge maybe twice in Tibetan and, and once in English. Sangye chodan sangye chonam ha Cham chu barndo dani kyam so chi Taige jin soye ki ki. Drala-pen-shir-san-gye-drup-ar-shyam. sange cha I go for a refuge until i'm enlightened to the buddha the dharma and the supreme assembly by the merits i create through listening to the dharma may i become a buddha in order to benefit all sentient beings so just taking a moment to adjust our motivation that we're here listening contemplating and meditating on the buddha dharma in order to awaken for the benefit of all sentient beings. So we move our intention, not just for the concerns of this life, not just for um, our own personal liberation, but that we may awaken all sentient beings till the end of samsara. So may this Dharma discussion, guided meditation, Any learning, reflection, and meditation that happens become a cause for this today. Wonderful. Thank you. (laughs) So, um, what's the topic again? (laughs) You read the title to me? It's Opening the Heart, right?
1: Yes meditation on loving kindness
0: meditation on loving kindness okay (laughs) so if it's okay with you i might start somewhere else and we'll end up there yeah and and there's a reason for that um so kind of like how I, i was opening the meditation briefly um i think these days it's it's important you know since all of you are Seems like uh, most of you are regulars here. You know the FPMT has such a good education program, and um, they're really good at laying down the foundations of Buddhism, uh, which is really precious because that's not the case everywhere you go. Actually, and that's not to compare or criticize anyone or judge anyone. Um, I just feel uh, like I spoke on earlier. We ha- kind of have a uh, now that meditation, mindfulness, etc., is, is so popular and trendy. You know. We often—it's—it's uh, it's a little bit harder to come into contact with with why we practice meditation from a Buddhist perspective, right? And, and in this case, why we—I want to talk about why we practice loving kindness, you know. And probably today, if we have time, I may talk about the other immeasurables too. So not just boundless love, but also boundless compassion, equanimity, and joy. Um, so, in general. Uh, mm, In general, I think Buddha Dharma, you know, I was teaching in Santa Cruz yesterday and and this whole topic came up about, I think sometimes we approach a a spiritual tradition sort of like it's something unique or different or maybe less practical than something in our worldly life, like maybe our car in relationship to getting to work, (laughs) you know? For me, Dharma is actually not that different. <laughs> I mean, of course, it's a very different result, but meaning the practicality and the kind of ingredients and kind of things we need to put into a certain thing matters, right? So for instance, I think none of us in this room would assume we don't have to have our car running with gas in it, the tires full of air, et cetera, all of these components together to get to work on time, right? We need all of those components as well as getting in the car driving, you know, setting our alarm, taking a shower, all, whatever we need in the morning. All of these things come together to show up to work in time, yeah? <laughs> and so I think in the Dharma world, we have a similar concept, we, but what we call it is v- usually view, meditation, conduct, and fruition, yeah? So kind of everything fits into these categories, more or less. So view is like um, an idea, right? So in the case of trying to get to work, it's the idea, I need to get to work, <laughs> right? I need to be here, at, be there at 9 o'clock or whatever time you need to be there. Then we have the actual meditation of getting in the car and driving to work. So we're getting used to that idea, right? We have the conduct that surrounds that activity. We have the conduct of, again, whatever preparation we needed to have done, whatever gas, oil we needed in our car, alarm setting, all of what I set out, yeah? Whatever you need. And then eventually we get to work and we achieve the fruition, right? So here, I think if we think of the Buddhist path like this and we start to understand, oh, okay, what is the view? What am I trying to get used to, right, on the Buddhist path? What is is the view of Buddhism in general? So I usually like to start talks like this because whether we're talking about shamatha meditation or vipassana meditation or emptiness or loving kindness, whatever, from a Buddhist perspective, you know, what I kind of wanted to focus on today was what makes Buddhism and loving kindness on the Buddhist path different than a worldly loving kindness? What separates the two, right? There's some things that they share in common, but there's some things that are quite different. And so I think we'll focus in on that. So in general, what we're trying to get used to, what we're meditating on within Buddha Dharma is, we could say the view coming from the four seals, right? Is anybody familiar with the four seals of Buddhism? Okay, (laughs) so uh, in the Theravada or Srivakiana vehicle, they they usually talk about these as the three characteristics. And in the uh, Mahayana sutras, um, the Buddha added on um, basically a fourth, where some some people say it's like nirvana is peace, right? Or nirvana is beyond all constructs. But more or less, the first three are in line with the Theravada tradition. So the first three are um, basically all compounded phenomena are impermanent. All, all, also, all compounded phenomena by nature are, are suffering, and all phenomena uh, have no true, inherently existent nature. Right. So those are the main three characteristics, or these main seals. So they're called a seal because it's sort of like when you, you know, when a king or a queen would seal a letter, stamping it with approval. These are kind of like sealed with the approval of the truth of phenomena. Right. Because from a Buddhist perspective. We have all this beautiful paraphernalia around us and propaganda and things to believe in and all that stuff. But really, what are we trying to get down to as a Buddhist practitioner? We're trying to get down to how things are, right? How things exist, how they don't exist. What is going to cause happiness for us? What is not going to cause happiness, yeah? So these four seals um, uh, with Nirvana uh, is beyond all constructs as the fourth, really set out the entire view of Buddhism. Because we're trying to come into a perspective of challenging our notion and feeling that ourselves and phenomena are permanent. Looking into and seeing, is there anything that we experience currently that's not within the realm of dukkha or the nature of suffering? Yeah, Which is a big one. I'll open that up a little bit more. (laughs) And then this third one, which is even more subtle. First by seeing an impermanent nature. Seeing the nature of how we, uh, the constructs around us, we see how we're bound, right? And so in the third seal, it's really working with that perspective of what really binds me, yeah? And so from a Buddhist perspective, as some of you know, we start to see that what binds us is clinging to an identity, to a personhood, clinging to a sense of a truly existent phenomena out there and a truly existent I or me or self here, right? And again, that's not to say there is not uh, something that gets enlightened, right? But when we look for that something, we can't find it. So a meditator looks through that seal. And so this is the actual seal of dharma that leads to the fourth seal of nirvana being beyond all constructs, right? So this is the view of what we're trying to get used to, essentially, as a Buddhist practitioner. We're trying to get used to all com- that all compounded phenomena are by nature impermanent. We're trying to get used to uh, what dukkha is and how it shows up in our life, and how it pervades our experience. And then eventually we're trying to get used to the thing that roots out that perception or experience of dukkha in the way it is, right? Emptiness, shunyata. And then what does it produce? It produces the fruition of Nirvana or Buddhahood, right? So I think if we get this really clear in our minds, when we sit down to practice, when we go to a teaching, when we reflect on the Dharma, it's always quite clear, why am I doing this? What is the purpose here? And we start to become more and more familiar with that, right? Because we have an idea, we're getting used to that idea. And then we have a conduct around how we're getting used to that. Like for instance, of course, we, keep, we try to keep ethics, we try to avoid the 10 non-virtues, things like that. But you know, from the outside, all of this, it can look quite religious but when you look at it from this perspective it actually it's not religious at all you know do you see do you see why because it's just a perspective we're moving into so we have to start with a concept we were talking about this with your question you know unfortunately the majority of us cannot just go beyond concept right away we have to work within concept refining sort of the concepts that are destructive and creating more constructive concepts but ultimately concept in itself is unconstructive from a buddhist perspective we just read the heart sutra right that's basically what it's talking about but it's difficult to go there right away right so we need all these constructive concepts so we need a view to get used to so we start with the first noble truth right working with the second seal of uh how dukkha uh, pervades our existence at this moment Or how we have the perception of dukkha pervading our experience. So here, you know, generally we're talking about three kinds of dukkha. So dukkha, I think I said it earlier, but um, suffering is not a very good translation. uh, Because it's really, we're talking about a web of how we experience ourselves, of how we experience the world, how we experience our emotions, our thoughts, our perceptions. Right? And so we have to look, we have to check. The Buddha asked in the First Noble Truth, he asked no dukkha like meaning please look at this analyze this investigate this so obviously the first kind of suffering this dukkha the dukkha of dukkha or suffering of suffering that's obvious you know we all know we get you know dull yeah poor dolly's got a you know hurt back back there today so we all <laughs> you know we all know we get these ooze and and aches and pains uh we age and eventually we have to die, right? So this is, this is the obvious suffering. Also, if we're aware, we know when, when an emotion is uh, completely obstructing our experience and just hijacking our, our day, right? Or turning us into an animal, you know, where we get angry and go off on someone, right? So we see uh, as a meditator, mm, okay, mostly my emotions, are, are, they're not that pleasant, right? Even the good ones. Right? Even, let's say, you know, we have a lot of desire for something and it's building and building and building. Is that desire really pleasurable? We have to check this as a meditator. This is our job. Not because we're trying to become partisan or judgmental or you need to not have desire to be a good Buddhist practitioner. That's not the case at all. It's really looking, is this desire helping me? Is it reliable? Is this really creating happiness, right? Does clinging attachment create that for me? And so we have to become more uh, skeptical, right? More suspect of, hmm, when we rely and we put our feet, or ground on something that is going to move, right? So we could see, you know, we may get what we want. It may feel good for a little bit. Then it changes, it leaves, it dies, we get bored, whatever, right? All these kinds of things happen. <laughs> so we have to look. And so over time, we start to become exhausted, With relying on something that does not provide happiness, right? So really uh, a lot of the path is just working to train and start to see Okay, I'm kind of getting exhausted with this and then we start turning to what is going to produce real genuine well-being Right for us and we start to turn to things like bodhicitta things like shunyana and emptiness things like loving-kindness in the Buddhist path, right? so so then, so, that's this, so then moving into the second type, type of dukkha, we have even more subtle, right, beyond just working with emotions, we have the, the dukkha of change, where something that appears pleasurable, like right now, I feel pretty comfortable. <laughs> they have a really nice cushy cushion here, you know, all of that. Uh, it's nice to be with you all this morning, but ask me in like a half an hour, you know, I'm probably going to have to move my leg because it's getting sore, right? So right when I sat down and I felt oh, like kind of bliss, relaxation, the Buddha is asking us to see right in there. Is that happiness? Is that suffering? What is that, right? So we have to look. Then the third type of dukkha, even more subtle, right? Because it's talking about just by the nature of clinging to an identity or identifying with an emotion, identifying with a thought, just by that very clinging, that produces suffering, right? So, and we would say within that, we could say the most subtlest type is mm, being bound by time and how time produces this sense of hope and fear, comparison. We're always in this kind of either or black and white categories, right? And so really, if you're just starting Buddhist sort of practice and Buddhist mm, learning, this is going to sound really foreign, <laughs> and even if you've been doing it for a while, it can sound really foreign. But actually, keep going. Right. So this most subtle one, it's it's hard to access, but it's it's it. It's what you want to point towards. You know. And again, we can study all these texts by Nagarjuna. We can study uh, Tsongkhapa, Shantideva, Wisdom Chapter. All these texts on emptiness, and we start to understand. But really, we have to practice. We have to look at how we're perceiving the self. How we're viewing uh, I, mine, or identity. And we can do that as we get more awareness. As we sit with the breath, eventually we start to turn the mind inwards. Look at the thoughts, look at emotions, look at where the clinging happens, right? And then we start to find some space eventually in that practice. So emptiness is not so far away. Sometimes we make emptiness this really like high thing, and it is, but mm, some Tibetan masters have said it's like, it's so close and so simple, it's like, it's like our eyelashes, and we just don't see it, It's because it's so close, right? So don't think it's so high, but also put effort, right? Does that make sense? So, and what we recognize is really the, the true kind of slave driver behind all of our suffering, right? Within this third type of dukkha, which is the clinging, right, that happens. At a very uh, subtle root level. Um, so moving in, then the Buddha obviously described the cause. So we're still we're in view here, right? Describe, describe the cause of all of this suffering as disturbing emotions and, and then the habitual tendencies they produce and the effects they produce, right? So here as a Buddhist practitioner, this is our first step. Becoming aware. Why do we practice mindfulness or awareness? Why? To become aware of what's causing harm, what's what's going to produce happiness. So we start to see, on a relative level, the more um, constructive emotions like loving kindness, compassion, patience, joy, that we develop, the more benefit we get, the more pleasant we're, be, we're <laughs> the more pleasant we are to be around, the more we benefit the world as well, just on a relative level. So we start to use the practice this way, and we start to challenge and reduce are disturbing emotions, right? And this takes work, it's not easy. I think it's also, cha- there's more challenge these days to us because when we add in the low self-confidence and, and sort of <laughs> the pervasive sense of um, just b- being so thrown off so, uh, culturally these days uh, by neoliberalism and all the systems that we exist in, it makes it even more challenging because it's sort of like we don't have the, the normal ground of just being a healthy human being, right? We need some of that too. And that's not necessarily dharma. It's just sort of a preliminary, maybe. Uh, And this is just coming into a sense of okayness. A sense of that we have inner worth and value. uh, Just like anyone else does. And that sense that we are not worthy or not lovable. That sense of a hollowness that some of us feel inside. is not true, right? It's not true. So, in that way, we might need some healing practices. Some work. Uh, from Western psychology, things like that. And also, of course, Buddhist practice can help there as well. I think actually the remedy is within two practices. First, studying what uh, Buddha nature is and understanding what that is and coming into contact with that more and more through practice. Understanding that from a Buddhist perspective, uh, we're not screwed up and have to perfect ourselves. That's not the premise here. The premise is we're already... We, we have the quality, the seed for enlightenment already there. We just have to bring that out or uncover that more and more, right? So it's very different from, uh, I would say, a scientific materialist view as well as, a, a, I would say, a popular Judeo-Christian view. It's quite different. So we have to recognize that within the path. The first step is to recognize uh, our own quality of Buddha nature. So even in... Um, uh, mm, Gompopo's Lamrim text, uh, I forget the name right now. Anyways, he wrote kind of a graduated stages of the path kind of text. And in there, the first, the first meditation, the first thing to think about is Buddha nature. It's the first, the very first thing. So that can be very helpful, as well as meditating on uh, this first step in the Lamrim Rim of meditating on a perfect uh, human rebirth and what that is. And really thinking about that and really trying to bring that into our experience. Because we start to come into uh, a connection with, what we really have. This preciousness we have as a, as a human rebirth. It's very rare. It's not just nothing. It's not just um, like a throwaway, you know? It's, for, for me, it's very sad when, when, when somebody feels that and then eventually commits suicide because it's like destroying the thing that's so precious, you know? It's very sad. But anyways, so, so this is uh, uh, what we're working with, right? And so, I know some of you know this already, but so maybe it's a recap. But see how this matters? Because then now, when we're talking about growing and opening our loving heart, what does that mean in connection with all of this, right? Is that just being a nice person? Is that just, of course, we should be a nice person. <laughs> of course, kindness is really good. But does it mean just that? You see what I'm saying? No, right? But why? Because we can see through the view. The purpose of the path itself is to liberate out of the very cause of our suffering, right? First, by working with reducing our negative emotions, our negative uh, actions, increasing positive actions. So therefore, we stop creating the karma that produces suffering, right? Then, slowly, we look into the nature of phenomena. We study things like the Heart Sutra. We start to see, how am I really being bound? Where is that clinging? Where is the self that I'm clinging to? We start to really investigate into that, yeah? And we do that on, not just for our own benefit, but with a bodhicitta motivation of looking and seeing that all others want happiness as well. I mean, this is an interesting question I ask myself from time to time. What are we doing? Like, (laughs) what are we doing every day we wake up? Like, why do we wake up? Why do we get in the shower? Why do we eat breakfast? What is driving that? I mean, it's a simple answer, but... Anybody have any thoughts? (laughs) Why do we do that?
1: Because we are part of a society.
0: Okay. I'm not going to answer. I'm just going to let you guys say a few.
2: Okay,
0: part of a society, he said. we want to be happy. Anything else? To fulfill our human quality of self-sustaining of life, Uh which leads to to happiness. So if we're not full, we're not fed, or we're not clean, we're definitely not happy in most cases.
1: So part of the habitual pattern of being
0: human that we buy into, and I think it's true of human nature. Mm -hmm. But that habitual pattern being seeking happiness, right? So I think basically this is the conclusion I've come to. Although a lot of these things I keep as open questions, you know. For me, Buddhism is really, it's offering such a precious path of inquiry. Like if we keep that spirit alive, really the Dharma becomes so alive because we keep asking questions. But yeah, uh, up till now that's been my running hypothesis or working hypothesis is that I'm looking for happiness, you know. I'm seeking some kind of relief, some kind of pleasure, right. And so we then begin to see, well, what is actually going to become the cause of that within the Buddhist path? Again, going back to the view, why we meditate, why we're doing what we're doing, right? And so we have this fourth seal within the view of something, uh, a quality, a way of being beyond constructs, beyond happiness and suffering, beyond bondage and freedom, yeah? So... It's very tricky to understand this because we're talking about something beyond a concept, beyond a construct, beyond something we can have as a experience within our thinking mind, within our relative experience right now, right? So it's very tough. But we can start to see through meditation. Like I said, as we look towards the mind and we start to gain some space and gaps in our experience, we start to see, oh, okay, this is kind of an overlay. There was a really good article recently. I didn't read the whole thing, but it's something like... Um, Like our entire experience is like a virtual reality or something like that. Like we're living in a virtual reality. Buddhism has been saying that for thousands of years. (laughs) It's not a new thing, right? But there's nobody pulling the strings behind that. The only thing pulling our strings... Actually, Gellick Rinpoche said this. The closest thing to a god in Buddhism is karma. Not because it's an entity or it's a thing, but because it's ruling our life, Right? And so we have to undo that, right? So in that second noble truth, or within this view I'm putting out, it's looking, how do I undo that karma? And so it's not, at the end of the day, it's not just by doing better karma. We have to uproot all of the karma itself, right? With the view of emptiness. So, now our topic. (laughs) So, loving kindness and and growing uh, this quality of boundless love, our ability to care, provide warmth, um connect with uh love others right we do this uh from a buddhist perspective not just to look good not just to make a better world though those things are the second one is a good thing obviously not just to be kind not just to uh you know somehow have an accomplishment of being a decent person we do this to wake beings up right so there's a big difference here because when we shift into a bodhicitta motivation, everything changes, everything switches. It moves from just trying to make a better world into I want this person to never have to be born into the world again uh, on purpose unless they want to, right? Does that make sense, right? And this is a big, big concept. It's, it's definitely a religious concept, <laughs> you know, because it's, it's not immediately immediately something we can see and interact with. But if we really understand the buddhist path and we look at it it makes sense right because let's say um, hmm, and it's hard to to make this case because it's not also making the case that it's not good to be a kinder person that's obvious i mean we need to be a kinder person and we need more love uh, connection warmth and care for each other in the world just to reduce suffering and have a more pleasant dream to live in but nonetheless it will still be a dream does that make sense so whether we have a nightmare or a good dream, it's still a dream. So at the end of the day, we have to wake up out of that dream and we have to become passionate of wanting to wake up other sentient beings out of that dream or help them to do that. Actually, bodhicitta is really, even like in a way we're becoming so familiar with this attitude of treasuring and, and, and cher- uh, cherishing others that we even forget about our own enlightenment that becomes kind of like secondary. Even you have stories of great bodhisattvas, like uh, uh, Siddhagarbha, who, you know, they are just, okay, I'll just hang out in hell for a while. No big deal. (laughs) But they do it for the benefit of other sentient beings, you see? This is amazing, actually, if you think about it. I mean, and then I don't think he's suffering there in the same way like I would suffer. So we have to think, and maybe that's an extreme example we really have to think what are we uh, what are we aiming towards here and so what are we aiming towards with our care with our kindness is it just again to fulfill some identity issue to kind of feel better about ourselves to feel like a decent good person or as samsara kenshin Rinpoche says to feel useful you know and again i'm deliberately being challenging why because at a certain point and i'm assuming some of you are mature practitioners at a certain point we have to upgrade you know we have to upgrade out of a simple view of something and to really understanding the bigger picture and the package as a whole, right? So if we understand what samsara is, really how we're bound, how other sentient beings are bound, we start to come into the capacity where mm, love and boundless love, it can look a lot of different ways, right? So, of course, we practice opening our heart. We're going to do some of that in a minute. Um, Practice in a relative way, opening our heart to others, growing that caring uh, warm heart beyond just our circle uh that is easy to send that to here we grow and extend our loving care unconditionally because we recognize all sentient beings as worthy we recognize that actually whether my son or daughter or husband or wife or friend or father or mother there's no actual reason that i can put forth that they're more worthy of my love there, as there's no actual logical reason it's just attachment and aversion when we get down to it so that's our first step as a Buddhist practitioner to work with that working past the bondage of our attachment and aversion, our attachment to some and aversion to others right but you see what I'm getting at the whole aim is within this view so we still keep this in mind this entire I mean maybe not everything I said but the essence of it right the entire view of why we're doing something and then of course when we add a bodhicitta motivation into the mix there Uh, it becomes something boundless. You know, they say, like, I think in some sutras, um, this isn't the literal uh, example, but, you know, the Buddha says things like, if you, being generous, like offering truckloads and truckloads of gold to someone with just an attitude of genuine generosity and care, just worldly generosity and care, which is beautiful, it's a wonderful thing. He said that doesn't even compare even at all to offering one grape to someone with the mind of bodhicitta. Completely different thing, right? So we really see the power of bodhicitta here, right? This mind of awakening, wishing all sentient beings awakening. Um, not just wishing that, we start to act on that eventually. Uh, we start to engage in the six perfections. But the first step, I think, is cutting out and reducing our preferences, right? For some, and you know, pushing away others. So that's why usually we practice boundless loving-kindness in the connection with the Four Immeasurables, which I think we'll do today. Um, Does anybody, well, I don't like to, does anybody not know the Four (laughs) Immeasurables? Everybody knows what the Four Immeasurables are, yeah. So, how they're they're kind of traditionally put forth is um, we would meditate on boundless joy first. Uh, We would recite it, then boundless love then boundless compassion and then boundless equanimity. But when we practice, uh, we actually reverse it. And so we put equanimity first. And so this becomes a really skillful means because we start to see, usually, again, the first thing we have to work with is our preference uh, to to those we love and, you know, uh, an indifference to more neutral figures and then an aversion to those that are challenging or we dislike. So first we work with equalizing as much as possible, right? And I would say this is pretty much an ongoing process. Cause I'm, you know, personally I may equalize. Okay, I got every someone, I got some people in my life equalized. Then I get a new challenging person, you know, comes in. So then I get to equalize and work with them for a while, right? And so it's always working with that. So actually, um, I was talking with someone at the break here. Um, this is the power of Buddha Dharma. It's in the process. It's not in, in the result. Though we talk about the result of law, right? I mean, it's almost like uh, we talk about Buddhahood, we talk about enlightenment, we talk about awakening, but it's almost like bodhicitta in in a sense is such a skillful means because we almost, mm, we stop focusing so much on result and we focus on the process. We focus on what the transformation is happening in the moment, right? What's happening with the mind, what's happening with the attitude. And so I want to say here to all of you, there's no state of mind in this sense of the word, there's no state of mind, no emotion, a way of being that's wrong if you know how to bring it into practice does that make sense because sometimes we think oh i can't think that that's wrong or oh that's an awful thought you know no of course maybe it's not a skillful thought right and of course we have to watch our actions uh, to reduce uh, actions that do harm but here we have to also open to all of our experience and what we believe what we think into questioning that into working with that But if we immediately shut it down, we don't get a chance to learn from it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So especially in this process of growing boundless love, um, for me, uh, a lot of it comes down to opening up that process of why I don't love someone. (laughs) You know, why there's a certain person I dislike or who pissed me off. And instead of just immediately rejecting... Of course, if I'm in front of them, I'm going to protect my mind and try not to harm them, right? That, that's definitely a, a good practice to do. But also, when we're alone, sometimes we don't have to immediately reject. We can just inquire. Okay, why? So this is the practice of the four immeasurables. It gets us really good at inquiring, really good at sitting with our states of mind, really good at mm, looking directly. And here, we kind of... Um, It's not saying that a a certain state of mind is then beneficial, it's more saying, how do we not immediately reject something? Because I think sometimes when we immediately reject, we lose out on that process of of what we can learn from it, right? So I would say we have to become this kind of inner being, and this is where awareness serves, right? Uh, In the beginning, middle, and end. Awareness serves to become this inner being where we can look at the mind. You know, once we get a strong capacity or meditation is strong enough, to turn that awareness on the emotion, turn it on the mind. Don't touch it. Just be aware and watch. And then we can put it into the mill, right? As we practice with the four immeasurables. We put it into the mill of practice, contemplating. So I don't know, this has kind of been my style lately. It's a question I have too, but I think it's useful because sometimes um, we don't learn when we just adopt a belief system without putting it into practice. Do You know what I mean? Sometimes Buddhism can be quite heavy Handed, And then also it can be quite heavy in the sense Where it lays everything out It lays like where we're at (laughs) More or less It lays out the path And then it lays out the fruition But the fruition I mean honestly if I really think about it You know after studying 20 20 plus years Of Buddha Dharma I don't know what the fruition looks like Are you kidding me? You're talking about something way beyond What I can experience right now I mean, that doesn't make me a bad person, it's just being realistic. We're talking about something beyond concepts. Buddhahood is not just like being a nice person or going to a heaven somewhere. No, it's not like that at all. You know, they written in the Vimalakirti Sutra, which I was listening to a teaching on. It's kind of Vimalakirti at a certain point says, uh, says you know, you're not going to go somewhere. It's not like you become enlightened and then you, you go somewhere else, you know. This is it, in a way, <laughs> you know. It's just we have an ability. Uh, there's no self to protect when you're enlightened. When you're enlightened, there's n- there's no one to protect. There's no one to uh, feel ang. If someone does you harm, there's no one there that that was done harm to. Does that make sense? So therefore, there's nothing but love. There's nothing but compassion that can come forth. So in a way, how we unify wisdom and compassion and love on the Buddhist path, they're almost kind of interrelated. Because when there's full realization of selflessness, what more can come forth but love? What, what, what else is left? It's not, because emptiness is not a nothingness. It's not a voidness, right? So what's left? All that can come forth is love and compassion. Great compassion for sentient beings who are still suffering. And so that's what an enlightened being does. And they have full power to enact that compassion, right? So... It's almost like uh, I think if we're training in wisdom or compassion, it's we're we're good we're doing good because either way, both are going to come out. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, but on the path of sort of relative practice, we work on both conceptually. So here we do train in the mind of love, right? Because if we wait for wisdom to generate, we might be waiting a long time. <laughs> you know. And also, love helps the wisdom, because see, we start to see in the view itself, now I remember what I wanted to say. <laughs> I was thinking about it this morning, but now I just remember. In the view itself, we see, again, why it's not just common loving kindness here, because what happens when we're more caring, we're more warm, we're more connected with others? Our own self-cherishing reduces, right? our own ego clinging reduces. Not completely, but temporarily. I love the story of His Holiness Dalai Lama where he said um, he he had like um, uh, uh, kidney stones or something like that. And it was really painful. He eventually, I think, had a surgery. And um, it was really painful. And so uh, he was traveling from Bogaya, I think, back to Dharamsala and um, something like that. And He was driving down the road and in India you see these just really horrific scenes, you know uh, of Yeah, just you Never see anything like that in America though. I don't know these days. It's getting worse <laughs> So anyways, he saw a scene of a beggar just just looking really really pitiful and and, and this just really deep com- he said this really deep compassion arose in him and uh, about ten minutes later he noticed he noticed he wasn't feeling pain <laughs> for the last, you know, 10 minutes. He thought, oh, that's so interesting, you know, because when his compassionate heart opened up for this person, his own suffering just reduced right away. Why? Because his, well, I'm not going to say it latest, uh, but, you know, if we were to do the same thing, it's because our self-cherishing reduced, right? It's because this clinging to a self reduced. So we have to see. Practices of wisdom, practices of of method or loving kindness, compassion that we're developing, it's like two sides of one coin. It really, really is. So if we practice love, incorporating it in this entire view, where we're understanding what the true enemy is, is our own selfishness, our own self-cherishing, the clinging to the sense of an I, me. That's not really there when we look, right? When we know what the true enemy is, then we can aim our meditation at that, right? So when we're training in loving kindness again of course the natural side effects are we're going to become a kinder more gentler person we're going to benefit the world produce our own and other suffering but the real benefit is our ego clinging reduces and then wisdom mind can pop out right emptiness is always there it's not like you have to go to san francisco and you know go to google and all these places and look for emptiness or you have to the more books on emptiness you read you're somehow emptiness is going to come someday no emptiness is just the nature of reality you know it's just there it's not something you have to art you know make art artificially right so we create the causes for it to pop out and one of the causes is as our self clinging and ego and self-centered cherishing reduces right so loving kindness is why we practice that So is this getting clear now? Just sort of, what I I mainly wanted to do was point out how this kind of connects into the Buddhist path, and um, because the practice is easy, it's not not easy in the sense of it's hard to develop, but there's not much to say about the practice itself, right? I think it's more important to talk about the kind of container and form uh, for for holding this practice. Does that make sense? Um, Real quick before we do a practice on the four immeasurables, is there anything? Questions, comments, complaints, <laughs> anyone has. I also want to do some discussion to see what you're retaining and kind of see what's what's clicking or not clicking. Ted told you I'd have to move.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm relatively new to Buddhism, so it's, uh, a lot of things are not clicking yet.
0: And that, that's, that's 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 fine. Yeah, yeah.
1: I'm just being patient, trying to
0: learn. Perfect. You're in you're in a perfect place. Yeah, yeah. As long as you can be patient with it, that's the best attitude. Mm-hmm. I think in the beginning I was such a zealot. So, for me, for me, I wasn't patient. I get frustrated. Yeah, it's it's a lot of things and
1: yeah, emptiness seems to be. You know, I I went to a, a training last week on emptiness. Mm-hmm. It's um, you know, I understand. Um, you know that there is no inherent inherent existence. That uh, you know, is cause and conditions. It seems like the law of causality, right?
0: You know, one. Thing it's part of it, lead,
1: yeah. Or, or part of it. So one thing leads to the other. But why is emptiness so so important? Yeah, we don't make that connection. Yeah. You know why why is that so important to our or uh, liberation, that
0: uh, that connection is missing. Yeah, so so I was spelling it out but I'll I'll be I'll put it more direct now. Mm-hmm. So in this in this third type of suffering I was talking about the, the the compounded sometimes called pervasive compounded suffering. It's the the very clinging to a notion of uh, an inherently existent self or something that exists independent or on its own that is the very root of suffering. Mm-hmm. So eventually for a Buddhist practitioner in order to Uh, completely liberate from suffering Uh, we need to recognize uh, what self that's appearing and phenomena that's appearing that's a mistake or a misapprehension Mm -hmm. so the Buddhist uh, notion here is that how we are generally viewing uh, and identifying with ourself and how we're identifying with phenomena is actually a mistaken perception and this is difficult to, to get for sure and this is why we need to combine the learning reflection with meditation because eventually we'll start to have more and more experience of um, we can't find the identity. Like for instance, one meditation we do, we just go on a search or a journey to look for the self. Where can you find a sense of I? You look in your body, you look in your mind. And so, you know, as Chandrakirti, uh, um, I think Chandrakirti, you know, in general he's a famous Buddhist scholar from uh, you know uh, ancient India, and he, he would, you know, I don't think he'd have a, he'd have a problem with, uh, with us looking, so we have to look for this sense of self. But then if we find something, then there's all kinds of logical sort of <laughs> problems that come about through that. So we look and we don't find, but also there's something that appears, meaning it's not that we're, we're completely non-existent, right? So that has to be sort of drawn out through meditation. But more or less, the reason we practice or meditate on emptiness is because it's the antidote and it is the nature of how things actually are, which is open dimensional, not fixed, not independent, interdependent. But because something is interdependent, it's not one thing, you know, but the problem is, I'll just talk about myself. When I get angry at something or when a very strong emotion comes Mm -hmm. completely, it feels like the whole world is that thing. You know, all of my perception is that thing. But when I really analyze it, when I check, <laughs> even with just the conceptual reasoning mind, I can't find that there. Like, it's not there, but it appears, mm-hmm. right? So, all the time what's happening is we're getting fooled by the appearance again and again and again and again and again. So, that's why the antidote is to try and see its nature, which we would say is, is empty of independent existence. So, it's not emptiness. It's Sorry, it's not like emptiness, nothingness. It's like empty of... Yeah, independent existence. Uh,
1: devoid devoid of.
0: uh, Yeah. And so um, we would say eventually that moves into an experience of uh, unification of appearance and emptiness. So in the tantric path, we talk a little bit more like that. So this is the the real uh, crux of it, where on the one side, we're not denying that this is a flower. And it can function as a flower. And it appears to me as a flower. But I also can't find a flower here. So actually, the world becomes quite alive and beautiful in a way and we're also free because all my concepts with this flower how it is whether i like it or not whether you know it looks pretty up here whether (laughs) it's going to give me allergies whatever all of that goes away right yeah so i don't know yeah keep studying it'll come yeah it's a really good thing to ask that question though keep asking it yeah that's what i mean it's like the the preciousness of, of Buddhist practice is asking again and again. And then we have the, mm, the challenge of also questioning our own bias and our own skepticism. So we're both questioning our bias on many different levels, as well as we're questioning the teaching at the same time. Yeah. It's so rich, I don't know. To me, it just becomes more and more rich there. Of course, you get some answers, like I said, like I call it my working hypothesis, and then it's just working with that, and then it upgrades, you know, and then it's like, wow, okay, all of that uh, is different now, you know, and that happens, and then that's what happens also through the combining learning reflection and meditation, that's why we combine the three, because if we don't learn something, we have nothing to reflect on, if we don't reflect, we have nothing to meditate on, that's why I keep hitting on why Buddhist meditation is so different than secular meditation or, or mindful meditation, secular mindfulness. There's no view there, you know. Maybe there's a view like I want to be more relaxed. So maybe that's the view for most people. So this isn't to then judge. I, I don't. I think secular mindfulness is wonderful. I'm not judging it. It's it's very beneficial for people. It's more to judge for ourselves. What do we want out of practice? You know. And I think that's the because I think uh, the biggest I would say one of the saddest things is if we're like, I'm a Buddhist and (laughs) I'm doing all this and I'm working on the path to enlightenment, but secretly our motivation is just to be more relaxed. That happens a lot. Yeah. Happened to me. I mean, it still happens to me. Some days I wake up and I'm meditating. I'm like, oh, I check my motivation. Oh, yeah, really? I just kind of want to be more at ease. Oh, that's kind of bullshit. And then I throw that one out, right? So... That's the whole path, right? But we also have to grow to some kind of capacity to do that with ourselves without also tanking our confidence. Does that make sense? Anyway, long answer, but yeah. yeah. Anyone else? Anything coming up for you? I was thinking about the secular meditation that
1: you were saying. And I think in like while they are doing it, they are Still, like when you start meditating without knowing what it is, you, you start developing compassion, like
0: on its own, like... I'm not sure compassion, like, but you do develop awareness, yeah, yeah and things exactly. like that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that's the that's where the jury's still out, because definitely, because our nature is emptiness, and our, we have this quality of Buddha nature, but it's sort of, I don't know if that's enough to bring it out. It, it, it definitely can help, because it settles the mind. And so, once thoughts start to settle through breath practice, even if you have no intention, once the energies in the body start to settle, thoughts start to settle, emotions, maybe certain people, due to certain karma, will be able to see in those gaps. Oh, okay, there's there's something, there's nothing in between there that seems fixed and solid, and maybe they'll take that further, and then maybe they'll get interested and in, you know want to study deeper uh, what that means. So. That's a possibility. I mean, you have that even throughout historical Buddhism, in a way. You even have traditions of Buddhism that are that are like more or less. There's not a lot of what's the word conceptual ideas like Chan Buddhism, even though they study. But it's a little bit more formless, kind of. And so, uh, yeah, I think it's possible. But I think at some point the person has to be nudged by a teacher. And a teacher who's who's awake or by a text like pick pick up something and then ah okay the mind's riper then and then the intention starts to form but i don't know i think this is an ongoing question i I, but i would say in the majority (coughs) yeah we had this debate yesterday a little bit uh, at a day long i led and um that was the debate someone was saying mindfulness leads to the same place as buddhist practice and i was like "Mm, i don't think so But I do think it can be beneficial in the way you're you're talking about it. That's where we have to be careful, and I don't think we have to judge it. I think we just make very clear for ourselves. That's the whole point I'm making. As a teacher, I think as as so-called meditation and dharma teachers, uh, we're responsible to talk about it and be educated and understand how to frame it for people. Uh, And I'm interested in the dialogue happening because I'm interested in then Mm. We like as Westerners sometimes or modern people this idea of oneness and everything like we like this universalist idea because it feels good and it feels kind of cozy and like it's very PC and it's very politically correct that oh all religions are wonderful and everything leads to the same place. So, but it's a little bit misguided. I'm not saying it's completely wrong, but it's, it's a little bit, uh, uh, what's the word? Mm, new age. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes we're having like new age Buddhism happen. And, and I think, you know, in a way I'm all for things and practices and all sorts of things to reduce the suffering of people. But what I'm kind of saying here is, wouldn't it be a shame if we lost the path to liberation? Like, wouldn't it be a shame if we lost the specific ingredients you need to really awaken out of samsara? That'd be a real shame. And that's, that, that, I don't know if it's at risk, but that could be possible, I think, when everything gets focused just on, on sort of how to make the worldly life more comfortable. It seems like everything is just aimed at that these, these days, you know, I don't know, just kind of raising more thoughts. But yeah, so that's my hope that, that's why I'm all for the, the secular mindfulness movement uh, in certain ways, as long as we start to have these conversations and open up more dialogue about it. I'm all for it because tons, of course, there's definitely going to be people who access it and then they want to go deeper. I don't personally care if they become Buddhist. Like I'm not interested in someone being Buddhist. I'm interested in somebody being awake, right? So it's kind of like focusing there, but we do have a path and ingredients that's been practiced for 2,600 years. So it's like the idea of then, oh, well, if you're interested in, I mean, I'm asking myself this question. If I'm interested in somebody being awake, why all this? Because this works. You know what I'm saying? Like, it can be replicated. And I think that should be a little bit in line with our values in the West because we value scientific rigor and scientific materialism. And if a certain pill or experiment works or something is produced, we we, we praise that. So I think more or less in Tibet, in India, Afghanistan, Burma, Thailand, Japan, I think if we check the history enough and we go and visit practitioners these days, it works when people really bring it to its fruition. Like whatever ingredients we're using now, of course, things are going to probably have to adjust culturally for us a little bit. But that's I think the, the Dharma won't change. Just certain uh, surface things, cultural things will shift. But that's the yeah, that's my main thing It it works. So why why reinvent it? And I think this is what neoliberal capitalism loves to do. Loves to reinvent things because otherwise it doesn't make money mm-hmm. yeah. To it. yeah, you have to so innovate can sell it. exactly yeah, and this honestly for me These days um, I could be wrong, but I think this is the our biggest challenge uh, socially more than any other challenge mm. yeah. uh,
2: Just one thing I've done the loving kindness practice. Oh like a lot of new things it just doesn't I have a hard time internalizing it so for me more than anything um, what just works best for me is just action you know sort of my practice throughout mm-hmm. the day and you know if I notice someone suffering I try to you know help um, and it seems like through that generosity it's much more impactful than it is with when I'm sitting and I just I like what you had said about Cheetah and how it just, I mean, it's so beyond that, uh, but um, I'm just wondering if you can give maybe your own experience about <laughs> how you grow that container, because I find it very, yeah, I just, yeah it's, it's not happening for me right now, you know, but I know, I mean, I can only see so many homeless people, and then it's like I, you know, I'm not going to be able to help all these people, and then it's yeah. you get depressed. Yeah. So how do you kind of go about this loving kindness through your own sitting practice?
0: Well, that's a really good question. Um, I think it's it's a little, I don't know, maybe it's not complicated, but I'm making it complicated in my mind. Um, Mm. I had my thought and I just lost it so I'm trying to get it back. <laughs> so I think a little bit sometimes so we need both. I think that's what I was going to say first was um we're not making a preference necessarily for like of course if we see someone in need we we have to reach out, you know, and we should do that. And putting it into action is wonderful cuz like you said it 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 not only is useful to someone uh but it also engages us in the practice a little bit more so i don't think i would say there's there's nothing wrong with that but i would say a lot of the times especially socially kind of for the reasons i was just saying again in my working hypothesis we have a little bit of a a a, a attachment to needing to be useful you know and a lot of the practice we're doing in the beginning is actually cutting through this attachment of the need to be useful because it's sort of like we're always looking when we have this need to be useful We're looking at something as a simple problem and solution and we're forgetting this bigger picture or bigger view of buddhism and this overarching nature of samsara that pervades our experience you know and this overarching nature of samsara from a buddhist perspective it's a little bit sad and that's why i'm mentioning it because you mentioned that sadness of you could help someone who's homeless but it's not going to solve the homeless problem right why from a buddhist perspective because if someone creates the karma to experience that level of poverty there's nothing you can do to, uh, once it's gone into effect, there's nothing you can do to change that for them. You can reduce their suffering within it, and we should as Buddhist practitioners, no question. But um, we have to also look at the bigger picture. It's a a pretty lame example, but I always remember this analogy of, like you can teach someone to fish or fish for them, (laughs) like that kind of thing. So really we're interested in, in, it's it's not a good example (laughs) because it's talking about killing, but you get my picture, right? So um, we're kind of more interested in, in sort of someone's awakening as, of, as opposed to just reducing their suffering. But we do both. So it's like, um, so I don't think as a Buddhist practitioner, no one would ever say, oh, well, just let them be poor and suffer and then pray for them. You know, that's kind of the problem we're running into these days with religion. Uh, that people are complaining about, and I agree. But then, when we're helping them, What motivation are we engaging in? What are we aspiring for them as we're offering them money or offering them a blanket or whatever help we're providing or taking them to a shelter? Um, And it's tricky because when we get into a problem and solution, I have not found yet a solution that does not produce another problem. And I really encourage all of you to try to find one. Does that make sense? So in Buddhism, in this bigger picture of the view of Buddhism, and the, the predicament we're in right now, we would say, um, we have to go beyond the problem and solution. And that's why we move towards awakening. Awakening itself is beyond a problem and solution. You've, you've pretty much eliminated both, right? And you, can, you can't eliminate that for that homeless person. He or she has to do the, their own work for themselves, but you can do that for yourself, and then you can help them, right? Through that awakening. Um, so I just want to talk about that because I think that's the bigger picture because then it's the sadness that we have to sit with as a Buddhist practitioner that uh, and as an aspiring bodhisattva that we reach our hand out to help yet we know the world isn't fixable. So the bodhisattva knows the world is not fixable they continue to try to fix it. Does that make sense? So it's very heartbreaking uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, he, he has this beautiful, I'll find it because it's on my phone. <laughs> I keep these things on my phone. Uh, you all know who he was? So I, I think this kind of sums it up. Um, he, he sums it up in this beautiful heart, uh, what's called the uh, tender heart of sadness. But I'll read this to you. Awakened heart comes from being willing to face your state of mind. The sitting practice of meditations is a means to awaken this within you. When you awaken your heart to your surprise, you find that it is empty. If you search for awakened heart, if you put your hand through your ribcage and feel your heart, there's nothing there except for tenderness. You feel sore and soft, and if you open your eyes to the world, you feel tremendous sadness. It is not the sadness of feeling sorry for yourself or feeling deprived, it is a natural situation of fullness. The genuine heart of sadness comes from this feeling that your non-existent heart is full. Your experience is so raw, tender, and personal that even if a tiny mosquito lands on you, you feel its touch." So he's expressing his realization of that, essentially. Uh, I think of the world not being fixable, but it's also he knows the illusion of that, right? Because hes I think he genuinely realized emptiness. Uh, I believe that as a master. Him as a master. Um, so, so it's, it's, it's a complicated thing, you know, because it's like when we're opening and growing this loving heart, we have this attachment to the need to be useful. We have this attachment to wanting to fix everything. Like now, I would say a lot of upheaval, I don't know if it's new, it's just sort of more in our faces because of social media, but there's so much upheaval, fix, fix, change, 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 but to what? What's the end goal, right? You put in a different leader, same problems happen, right? And of course, we could say in one way, I'm more interested in systems on a relative level, like looking at systems and seeing what systems are doing violence. But I've been thinking lately, let's say, I mean, I'm kind of uh, really on this kind of criticism of neoliberalism neo- lately. Let's say neoliberalism as a system is gone and some other system replaces it. Still, because of karma and delusion, there'll be problems again within that system. So. Yeah, it's very tricky. You you get what I'm kind of saying overall? Just kind of, it's a tricky problem. But we hold this as a Buddhist practitioner. This is part of our path of awakening. It's holding that paradox and holding that duality. Uh, Yet we still work on the path and we still grow our open heart. Uh, Practically, relating to your question, it's important to try and to sit on the cushion and to work at it. It's not um, natural sometimes. It's not, we're not always gonna feel super juicy <laughs> in the practice, like, oh my, I feel so loving today. 99% of the time, I still feel like a dry, you know, uh, dried up, we call it dried up yogi, you know? But I just do it. So a lot of time, th- this is what contemplation or analytical meditation is, we're, we're training the mind. And then you'll be surprised, is one day, you're not in this attitude of uh, needing to be useful, but you just are useful, right? just happens why because you familiarized your mind with it and you changed your attitude so yeah that's what I would say we just do it and don't worry too much like whether it feels rote um, and then as you do it because it's a process you'll find ways that you you feel more connected with it like for me sometimes in a meta practice for instance a loving kindness practice I don't like focusing on the words though that's how I lead it usually more I focus on the feeling and I just build this real warmth in my heart. And it can be really tiny. Even if it's, it's that tiny, I just focus on that, relax, and rest on that, you know? Then maybe prompt something. And so we can use you know, tools of visualization, tools of uh, metaphrases or, or phrases of loving kindness, tools of um, just feeling that. And then in the moment, like when you're, I don't know, your family situation, but when you're with a loved one, See how that feels in your heart and start to familiarize yourself with that. And then we grow that further and further. So I don't know if that makes sense, but... That helps. Yeah. So I think we just have to do it. My, my teacher, Sonia Ramshay, he always says, just do it. <laughs> like Nike. <Yeah. laughs> so let's pr- practice because I don't want to run. I, otherwise, I just talk the whole time. <laughs> so we have about... want to leave a little bit more time at the end so maybe we'll do about 20 minutes of of the four measurables yeah we'll do what I call an express four measurables practice (laughs) like going through the Starbucks (laughs) drive-thru okay so just take a few moments feel free to close your eyes if you'd like just coming into the breath just letting the breath ground you into your body, into this moment. And out of all of the mess of things I said today, <laughs> now we focus on just this very basic intention of body mind. That now I'm going to sit down to practice the four measurables in order to awaken this enlightened heart, enlightened intention, so that I may become a Buddha for the benefit of all sentient beings. Or, we could reverse that. I may benefit all sentient beings by becoming a Buddha. And so we're gonna start with the practice of equanimity So here we're going to start with the classic meditation of imagining in the space in front of us a loved one, a dear one, an enemy or challenging or difficult person, and a neutral or maybe a stranger, someone you can imagine but you don't really have a preference strongly either way towards them. Or just take a moment to <coughs> let each of these people arise in your mind's eye. <coughs> just let them arise intuitively, who you need to work with right this moment. <coughs> and you can visualize them or imagine them directly in front of you, starting from the left and moving to the right. And here I like to both feel their presence as if they're in the room here with me, as well as imagine them in my mind's eye. So here, just a quick note on visualization. Visualization, I think the word imagination is a little bit better, because we're not just visualizing this. I want you to try to feel them in the room here. Think about their qualities. So first, starting with the qualities of your loved one or dear one, what are are their facial expressions like? What are their body language? What does their body language look like? What kind of clothes are they wearing? What arises for you feeling-wise when you think of them? similarly with a challenging or difficult person and also with the neutral or stranger. So, having imagined this, we're going to start by focusing on our dear one. So, here, these, this is the person we have built up a sense of care, warmth, kindness, compassion towards, as well as them towards us. And naturally, Due to the habit of mind we've most likely also built up a sense of attachment or clinging again there's nothing inherently wrong with that though we have to check is this real is the attachment true and we can see especially people who are close in our life dear ones We've also had many challenging moments with them. Maybe we could even swap them out for the difficult person in this meditation quite easily. So we start to think about them in a more holistic perspective beyond just as a dear or loved one. And holistically, we can see where our attachment lies because we're magnifying qualities they have or ways they treat us. And the relationship has become quite conditional as well. So here, we'll just use my words as a prompt to inquire, a way to look into Here, we're not trying to reduce our love for this person, but what we're rooting out is a little bit of this bias. Again, just questioning why, from a logical perspective, do I treasure this person more than anyone else? And again, it's most likely because we've familiarized with them. There's something they do for us, there's something they provide. And so, again, it's based off of our own self-cherishing, not necessarily them as a person. So here we can use this line of inquiry just to produce more of an equanimous sense towards them. We're not reducing our love or care for them, but what we are doing is reducing the attachment. Moving on, we can briefly reflect on a challenging person. Here, it's the opposite issue. This person maybe has done something harmful to ourselves or another. Maybe they annoy us. Maybe they took the job we wanted. And here, we don't have to become a doormat and deny any harm they might have done. But we're also recognizing, same as our dear one, this is a dynamic individual. More than just our view of a challenging person or a difficult person. As if we know them well, maybe we know them in other aspects. We've seen them in a positive, beneficial light. Seen them smiling, laughing, taking joy with their family and friends. So what we tend to do is focus in on the aversion, focus in on, again, how this relates to ourselves. We forget that this person also has wishes for happiness, intentions for happiness, and a need for that, and a need for loving care. So here, I like to imagine this person taking joy with their family. I like to imagine them when I might have known them in happier, more joyful spaces. Trying to put myself in their shoes as much as possible, and trying to see them beyond just a difficult person or a challenging person. So, as I just spoke in the question and answer, This is not a simple process. Usually we have to go through this again and again and again. Just slowly, gently, we're not pushing ourselves, we're just inquiring very gently. Just pose the question, is this person exactly as they appear to me? Are they only a difficult person or is there more than that? And right away when you start to ask, you're probably still gonna feel aversion, so that's okay, but we start to question. So by this, if we start to experience a little bit more of a sense of equanimity, uh, equalizing the loved one, the challenging person, we move on to the so-called stranger or the one we just don't have much of a connection to. And again, we can Reflect and put ourselves in the shoes of this person. Attempting to see them beyond just a stranger, beyond just someone I don't know and maybe don't need to care about. I like to imagine them with their family, with their friends, with their pets. I like to imagine just as I want happiness and the kind of happiness I wish for in my life, they also wish for the same thing. Maybe in different forms, but they also want and crave it. So what makes them any less worthy than my dear one? So now take a moment to move through these three characters in front of you, just notice what your feeling is now. If something has shifted, it's okay if it hasn't. Here we're just working in the practice can take time to shift these things. But just notice how it feels and you can continue the inquiry in your own way, briefly with them. Going back to a figure that you wanna work with, that you wanna to, wanna to open up the conversation about. And I I'll be honest, when it's a challenging person, it's difficult to even wanna open up an inquiry here sometimes. So Just be gentle, go slow. Briefly, we're going to imagine that all around these three figures, sentient beings start to pop up. Just like flowers blooming quickly, like popcorn popping, and the space in front of us becomes like a vast plain or vast ocean filled with sentient beings both those we know, those we don't know. And we apply this same practice. All of these beings wish for happiness. All of these beings wish to reduce or eliminate suffering. They wish to be comfortable. They don't wish for uncomfort. And so what makes any one of them more worthy than another? Similarly, we can even put ourselves in the practice we want, equalizing our sense of our own self centered cherishing. If you feel this sense of equanimity, just rest in that feeling for a moment. So now preserving this field in front of us, this imagination, we're now going to deliberately offer our loving care. Starting with the dear one, we open our heart wishing them happiness, wishing them peace, wishing them safety, wishing them ease, wishing them joy. if you'd like, you can repeat a phrase towards them silently in your mind, like a mantra, such as, may you be happy? Or you can just let that feeling resonate of connection towards them, of the loving care in your heart you want to send to them. And send that to them as a feeling, noticing them receiving that. Maybe they smile or Her face and body lights up with joy. Some of you who like visualization practice, you can also imagine like a bridge or tunnel of light connecting the two of you, communing in this loving care and kindness, just offering it back and forth. now moving on to the challenging person. Just evoking a phrase towards them. If you have to, you can refresh your memory of seeing them more as a fuller human being beyond just as a challenging person. And here again, like I pointed out in the Q&A, We're not necessarily focusing on the result, though of course it's nice to have a loving heart towards someone, but here just focus on the effort and the practice, again and again offering them a phrase such as, may you be happy. And if you don't have a feeling towards them, just focus on that phrase, sending them the contents of that, or whatever you wish to send them from your warm, caring heart. If at any moment you do have a feeling of warmth and care, That gets evoked. Just let that emanate out towards them. Or this tunnel or bridge of light, sending them your goodness, your merit, your kindness, warmth, care. Then moving on to the so-called stranger or the someone someone we don't know so well. again, bringing all of this kindness and warmth you've been cultivating just sending it right at them or repeating a phrase towards them such as maybe be happy or something word phrase that evokes that sense or connection with them recognizing their deep need, for happiness and well-being. Their humanness. Just finding a quality within them that you can really cherish and send this to. It's almost as if we're trying to look on them as Buddhas look on sentient beings. Buddhas do not see flawed sentient beings. They see beings like their precious children all beings like that. And finally, opening up the practice to all beings, as vast as space, spread out in front of you like an ocean, as far as the eye can see, or just feeling that in your heart and sending your loving, caring warmth towards them, that they may be happy, they may be at ease, that they may be safe, that they may have joy. Now here, I want you to also include yourself as we're ascending being in this picture as well. So it's almost like a reciprocal kind of circular pattern that starts to happen here. It's not like we're An autonomous individual being sending out all of this love. It's a pervasive environment of love that we're also encapsulated in. So that love is also within you, being sent to you, reciprocated. I like the word communing these days, where we're communing back and forth. you'd like and if it helps, you can even imagine all Buddhas, Bodhisattvas directly behind you, and that you become transparent and they're sending love through you that you're sending forth. So not only are you accepting that love from all Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, or any benefactor you want to connect with, but that's moving through you, kind of like how a projector projects a movie, loving light, touching all the beings in front of you. And now letting (coughs) this immeasurable just come to rest. (coughs) I'm gonna briefly do the next two immeasurables. So here, immeasurable or boundless compassion. We're not going to work with each individual just for the sake of time, but just all of the sending beings in front of you becoming aware of the vast suffering that exists in the world, that exists for ourselves, for those around us. What we have to bear witness to these days on the news, on social media, driving around our neighborhood, in our family, in ourselves. Just wish that all beings were free from this suffering. Suffering of sickness, birth, old age, sickness, death, all the way up to the suffering of the bondage we experience of samsara. So wishing them freedom from samsara itself. Just feeling that in your heart gently or just repeating silently towards all of them you be free from suffering. And gently letting that come to rest. Now, just taking joy in all of these beings in front of you. Taking joy means feeling happiness at their happiness. Here we can start with moments of those we're close to and around us, perhaps son, daughter, niece, or nephew, a partner, just taking joy in their happiness when we notice they've been happy and a smile they have and a laugh they have And spreading that out to all sentient beings. Just taking joy in their well-being and happiness when they find it. the practice come to rest just rest in your open spacious heart of equanimous loving compassionate joy just letting go of the practice coming back to the body coming back to the breath just see if you can let be with this open heart spaciousness that may have been produced from this practice. Feel free to open your eyes coming back in the room. How did that go? <laughs> is that okay? Yeah? So what you can do in that way is, um, since we were kind of focusing on loving kindness, we spent more time on that and kind of going through each individual as well. And, so, and then some days you can focus more on compassion, more on joy, just depending on how much time you have. I think the, the equanimity part, I don't know, you can play with it. For me, it's probably the most important part because otherwise the love is kind of off. It's, it's not equal. You know? But we really start to see over time, and again, it just takes time uh, with, with reasoning as well as opening the heart in certain ways where you start to see, yeah, there's really no reason um, I, should, <laughs> I should have more love for my partner than you know the neighbor I don't know down the street. But don't tell your partner that. <laughs> They'll get upset, <laughs> most likely. Unless they're practicing the same thing. So um, we have a few minutes and then we'll do some dedication prayers. If there's just any thoughts or any last questions or anything you want to clarify or just speak about.
1: I was just noticing my feeling, like, how it felt inside. Like, with the person I love, it was very nice and warm. And then on the other one was, like, very... And then on the back of my mind, like I've done this practice many times before with different people, but it's like, okay, I love you, I understand you, you wanna be happy, I'm giving you compassion, but you're gonna run over me. You know, like no. it's, it's hard because I, I try to, okay, you only wanna be happy, you're a good person, but if I act in a compassion way, I'm going to be affected
0: because you just are very aggressive on me. So it's, that part is really hard. Yeah, that's, that's, no, it's a good, thank you for saying that. That's where we have to kind of balance it out here because mm, it doesn't mean we then become a, a, you know, like I said, a doormat for somebody. Right. It, it doesn't change Actually. I feel when we do this practice well, um, we may have more skillful boundaries with people like that. Not only, but it doesn't come out of our fear or our selfishness. It comes out of um, real compassion. You know, where it's mutual, where it's compassion for both ourselves in the situation as well as the person. Because boundaries are sometimes good for not just us, other people. And then, of course, you, you know, the more our practice grows, you know, we'll need less and less boundaries, but. I've noticed that even really high Llamas have pretty good boundaries with people, you know? Uh, So, just on a relative level, if they care or not, I don't know, but it's good for other people sometimes. Especially if they're being, you know, not a good person. (laughs) So, yeah, I would say just, it's more the focus is on shifting your, that, you know, your experiences towards them and the limiting we do of them so you know usually we move into a limiting belief where then someone just becomes only that so that's what we're trying to open up right um and i think it's really good you notice the feeling because what we're not doing is denying that feeling that's something i add on to this practice culturally for us is um don't deny like don't try to suppress your own frustration or anger with them but instead we we, we give some space to acknowledge and bear witness to that, but yet with the, th- with the thinking mind, we're opening up the conversation about them. Does that make sense? So it's kind of, there is a little bit of manipulation of the feeling, but it's, it's, it's subtle and it, we do it slowly and gently as to not, because for a lot of us, I think the problem can end up where we end up suppressing our own need, which can become kind of distorted mm. sometimes. I think in probably old Tibet and India, that, that was probably less of a problem, is, is, is my feeling, but who knows? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Can you talk a little bit about um,
1: what you said, when you get deeper into the practice, we'll have less and less boundaries? Mm-hmm. That feels um, very counterintuitive to a lot of Western psychology that says, you know, boundaries are important, boundaries respect our, our self, right,
2: and all of this. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, but like I also said, you'll find like very realized masters who still have really good boundaries, right? But a a boundary is a relative perception. Mm -hmm. So if there's no one to to protect here, the more and more realized someone, what's a boundary then? You see what I'm saying? So there's less and less boundaries from the perspective of the subject. But objectively, of course, there can appear to be boundaries, right? Which can be helpful for the other person. Does that make sense? But for the individual themselves, as we as we become more and more free, there's less of a self to protect. What boundaries do you need? And as the open loving heart opens more and more and more, what boundaries do you need for yourself? There's just going to be less and less that you personally need. But of course, you may need to put some for the other person. That That's obvious. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's more like, because Western psychology notion only has an idea, a, pr- a perspective that um, you can uh, like individuate and, and you, can have, you, can, you can have a healthy, you can build this healthy sense of self, healthy ego. Buddhism is, is at a certain point, you're transcending even that healthy ego, right? But it's tricky. You have to be careful with that for sure. It's not, it's not a, this is where I think people can do a spiritual bypass, uh, where they can sometimes, before they're ready, they start denying, like, oh, I, I could just be selfless. And then you end up in a lot of problems, especially with the funky, um, funky a, <laughs> a loose word but the mm, the psychological issues we often have culturally right especially this pervasive a lot of low self-worth and hollowness and borderline issues of course like that would be a no-go for some of these practices until that person had some mm, yeah does that make sense yeah yeah that's a good question All right. So thank you all so much. It's been a pleasure to be with you this morning and, yeah.